The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Liz, Liz talked a lot about uh, mindfulness of the body, and we just started to touch a little on the feeling tone. We had a little longer discussion about feeling tone just now. I just want to point out that feeling tone is actually mental, and it's not a property of the event itself, but it's how the mind categorizes the experience, usually based on, you know, often based on our own personal memory or history, you know, with that object. So it's not an objective out there quality of something. It's a mental categorization of what happened. So often even what we think of as the body, I mean, you know, until you really get the hang of this practice and you're getting along in it, it's often quite intermingled with mental aspects. So thinking, you know, you think you're being mindful of the body, but what you're really telling yourself is, you know, my knee, my knee hurts. And every one of those words is a mental construct of mine and that this is a knee and that it's painful. So the mind and body are often very intermingled in what's going on. And part of the art of mindfulness of body is to begin to sort those out and try to stay with what's called the bare experience of the sense without the mental overlay. So um, I have to say that I came at this practice in a little bit of a different way. I found it very hard to stay with the breath and very frustrating and very difficult. And if I hadn't had the idea right from the beginning that it was also possible to simply be aware that frustration was happening and that this is the experience of resistance and frustration and this is the experience of not knowing what I'm doing and so forth, I probably would have, you know, not stuck with this for 20 years. So I really needed to start with this understanding that there was this possibility of knowing what's happening as a phenomenon that we can you know, be aware of instead of lost in right from the beginning. So for me, it's been important to intermingle mindfulness of moments of feeling the body with moments of being aware of what's going on in the mind. I'm also just off a 10-day retreat with Andrea and Alexis Santos, who teach in the tradition these days of uh, Utejania, who's kind of specialized in this mindfulness of mind practice and as a way of even from the right from the beginning working with mindfulness of mind so I'll be mixing a little bit the perspective that I appreciate from that teacher with the perspective as it's presented in the Satipatthana teachings which I don't feel are at all contradictory but they just have a different flavor so this third foundation mindfulness of mind is mindfulness of chitta first of all And it's interesting that in the Asian languages, mind and heart, uh, there's not a distinction between those words. So it's easy when we hear mind to think of our heads and that we're going to go up to our heads and be mindful of mind. But it's actually mindful of, you know, something that I don't know that it has a location, you know, or it may have a whole bodily location, but this whole kind of unified sense of what is a chitta, a state of mind, like mind influenced by anger, mind influenced by lust, wanting, you know, mind in a state of delusion. So knowing those things involves, uh, so being mindful uh, that that's the current state of mind is what mindfulness of mind is fundamentally about. So it's good to bear in mind that the purpose of 
all of this right mindfulness practice that we're doing is to lead to liberation, to the freedom of the heart and the mind from afflictive emotions and from being completely entangled in resistance and clinging and grasping in relation to changing conditions. So that's different than some of the popular ideas of mindfulness right now that are, seem to veer a little bit toward more enjoying sense pleasures and being mindful of the wine and mindful of the gourmet meal and so forth or being mindful at work and more productive and, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of ways that you can use paying attention. But right mindfulness is keeping on this track of understanding that the purpose of mindfulness is really to notice what's happening and how we are either adding clinging and resistance to it and adding to more suffering or seeing it more clearly as just phenomenon. So it's gradually developing this ability to have the framework where you're looking at it, object, your experience objectively as unfolding phenomenon of body and mind rather than from the context of me and my problems and what to do about them you know, as things come up. So discerning the state of mind involves all kinds of stuff, you know. Fundamentally, it's about the state of mind, but there's a lot going on in the mind. There's thoughts, beliefs, images created by the mind, internal thoughts, internal hearing, emotions. All this can be considered part of mindfulness of mind. Um, Emotions is an interesting intersection where mind and body really are working together. And you could say that the mindfulness of mind part is really identifying what is the fundamental um, underlying like intention or motive or mind state behind this emotion, you know. So you can so anger for example. And then anger has a lot of physical components to it, but understanding that anger is the fundamental mind state that's behind this. You know, or maybe even wishing that things were different than they were. So there can be a way of opening up to really identifying what's going on in the mind in this moment. So it's quite interesting. It's part of this is learning to work with thoughts, to see thoughts in different ways, to see thought as a phenomenon. I keep using that word because it's so key to understanding these second and third foundations. Is really beginning to see things arising and passing just like if a sound goes by, you can maybe tune into the fact that it, there's a time before it happens, then it arises, it lasts a while, maybe decaying and changing, and then it's gone. A thought is a similar thing. It's a mental event that happens that you can learn to be aware of in that way. And when you're watching it in that way, then you're much less inclined for it to just chain on to the next thought. If you're actually seeing the process of how it wasn't there, and then it's there, and now it's gone it's not going to lead to the next one and the next one and the next one. And, if it, and then you can tune in, maybe there's some urgency that that feels like to think about this. Then you can work on identifying the state of mind that's underlying that. So as we learn that we can see physical experiences of discomfort as something that's, you know, just a sensation, just pressure, just heat, just tingling, something like that. When we really see that it's just that and it's not me and it's not mine, we can begin to see mind states in the same way. So it's freeing in a way to see that something is, oh, this is just frustration. 
then we're getting that space with identifying it and we can begin to be interested in noticing how that's conditioning the body, maybe heat and pressure in the body, maybe the tendency of the mind to think certain thoughts. But coming back to that fundamental mind state that is there that is driving all these other phenomenon. So it's very different to um, to understand experience that this is the experience of something like frustration or impatience. To see that in order is very different than I'm frustrated and I'm impatient and then from there you want to continue to get involved in it. One thing that helped me from the Tejaniya tradition is this word attitude. Because I used to hear a lot about mindfulness of emotion and mindfulness of mind state and mindfulness of thought. But there's a whole more subtle area that really is a state of mind that's reflective of your view and beliefs that you might have about your, your place in relation to the world. So mindfulness of attitude, you know, is, I found it very helpful to ask myself, what is the attitude? And then there's also a sense that this leads right into a, a kind of right attitude in practicing mindfulness itself, which is very interesting to start to look at this fundamental difference between a mind that's trying to do something, trying to make something happen, trying to make something stop happening, clinging or resisting, or is it really just wanting to see clearly? You know, there's some, we talked a lot about ardency and engagement with the practice. And there's a way of doing that where you can see what is your motive. You know, are you doing this so that you can become very good at mindfulness or so that you'll have something to report to the teacher at your next interview? Or, you know, there are a lot of ways or to, or to make something else stop and tune out and block out something else that's going on. So there are a lot of different motives that are going on in a moment of mindfulness. I mean, in a moment of practicing, trying to use your attention and your attention somehow to pay attention. So part of mindfulness of mind is noticing what is, with what is the attitude that you're bringing to your practice in this moment. Um, so there's a sense in which mindfulness of mind, I think, calls for a very light touch. There is some value in, in making a very firm intention to stay with the breath or something like that. It's very settling and calming and collecting of a scattered attention. But there can be a sense in which it's, it's mindfulness of mind seems to me generally to require more of a opening up, backing up, opening the lens, let me see what's going on here kind of way instead of the focusing in. Because the focusing in, at least for me, the sense that I'm focusing in very hard is itself a state of mind that then kind of swamps seeing what else is going on. (laughs) So I find that the attitude that's most helpful for seeing mindfulness of mind is this broader, more relaxed, open, spacious attention where you're kind of letting things come to you and you're seeing that, you know, really right now it's just what this is. It's just what's happening. So what kind of effort in fact, is involved in recognition. It's more of an act of, of allowing something to present itself for recognition. And you can't really make an effort to recognize, you know. Recognition is, is something that happens if you give it space to happen. 
So the effort is in non-distraction, not doing something else, and not fighting with what's happening. But, you know, that, so it's a kind of effort to make space for something to become clear what's happening. Um, so Tejaniya talks, for example, about becoming aware of the difference between seeing and looking. You know, looking, we're looking for something, we're focusing on something, it's got a lot of perception in it where what is that, you know, specifically. And then seeing, you know, you can see effortlessly, right? You're just seeing, you are seeing if you have your eyes open and your faculty of sight is functioning normally. Or listening versus hearing. There's a sense of listening in order to get the answer or to hear or to figure something out and then just hearing. So I find this very interesting. This quality of interest is one way that I might understand ardency. So your 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 care, you're interested in what's happening. You're interested in getting to know your experience better. You're interested in maybe being able to be more honest and clear with yourself about what's happening, to allow more of what's happening. You know, not be afraid to just let something be right where it is. And also the understanding that you don't have to dig in, you're not trying to dig in there and figure it out, and go in there with a pickaxe and get at what it is. But you're just letting yourself be aware, which is a natural faculty, aware of what's presenting itself. You know, what is it? So you're just there kind of holding an open space, like the analogy that Ajahn Chah gives of the still forest pool, where it's still and quiet and all the creatures come to drink. And you get to see all kinds of interesting things the more you're just quiet and still and letting things be as they are. So the practice that, uh, that Andrea teaches is really a way, a very gentle introduction to mindfulness, which is not so object-oriented like where it matters that you stay on the breath. That's a beautiful practice for settling the mind and for combining concentration and mindfulness training in one practice and you learn a lot about your body. But there's another way of practicing which is to really appreciate cultivating recognizing presence and recognizing awareness of mind. So am I aware? You just ask yourself as often as you can, am I aware? And if you ask yourself that, the answer is probably yes. But then you can get interested in you know, how clear is your awareness and how, are, you know, are we, are we really here or are we half background thinking about something else? And what are you aware of and what is your relationship to what's happening? Are you clinging to it, trying to make it stop somehow, hoping if I'm mindful enough it will go away, hoping that, you know, if, I, if only I was mindful enough then something else would be happening. So all these attitudes are more just things that we can notice. It's also possible then to have a kind of continuity of awareness with all kinds of mind states that are not so clear, like sleepiness, restlessness, confusion and boredom. I love this uh, analogy that Andrea gives, that it's like a mirror that's fogged up. You know, you might think you can't see in the mirror because it's fogged up. But from the mirror's perspective, it's accurately reflecting drop by drop exactly what's happening, right? 
And I find that very helpful when I'm, the mind is totally confused. You can be quite clear that total confusion is what's happening and you don't know anything else about it and there's nothing else to be said about it and it's frustrating and you can be very clear that those things are happening. And so in that way you don't have to feel like you can't practice or that more effort is needed, but just more backing up and recognizing, yes, this is what's happening right now, even if there's nothing more that's clear about it to you. So as you learn to practice with the mind in this way, in being aware of the mind, it allows the mind's engagement with itself and with all kinds of activity to kind of settle down. And the mind, there can be a kind of stillness in awareness where you're aware of change. Constantly things can be coming and going and changing. And yet more and more there's a stillness in this kind of bigger, relaxed observing of what's happening that uh, is a little taste of kind of freedom of mind. Freedom of mind, it's like putting the clutch in in the car somehow. It's, you're not so engaged in struggling with what's happening, but you're more and more clear and aware of what is happening, you know, and, and the feeling tones of it and things, all the foundations of mindfulness that we've talked about. So it just varies very much by people whether it might be easier for you to start with this very broad sort of cultivation of awareness, appreciation of awareness itself, or whether it's very helpful for you to pick a particular object like the breath and really cultivate getting to know the breath. And I find that either way leads. As the mind quiets down, as I become okay with frustration, okay with not being very good at this, okay with whatever my mind is telling me about myself, then gradually the breath is more available. The breath is what's happening. In fact, I often feel that when I've really seeing clearly what the mind state is, the result is a a natural breath, you know, a sort of relaxation and a deeper breath. And then maybe there's not much happening for a while and I'm able to stay with the breath more easily. You know, so it can work either way. Um, It's interesting to just let it, you know, the other day I was I was finding that I was just grasping at one thing after another and not liking that, no, not that, and try something else, and no, not that. And finally I said to myself, oh, this is just restlessness. And in that moment, saying that, yeah, that was true enough that I was able to kind of stop and stand there in the middle of the room and quit running around crazy. Okay, this is just restlessness. And then as I stayed, let me just stay with restlessness. And so I was staying with, there was a bodily component to it, and the mind kept darting off to think of other things to do. But since I was seeing it, I wasn't following those little suggestions that I should run to the fridge or the phone or something. I was just standing there. And the more I stood there, it became clear, oh, this is impatience. There's an impatience. And that was a little more accurate. And so then there was another breath, a kind of, oh, a different level of relaxation in recognizing impatience. And so then, okay, I'll just stay with impatience. And I just stayed with impatience a while. And then it became clear, oh, there's a kind of wanting, there's a kind of get all this stuff over with so that I can be quiet and still. Get, it, get whatever's happening out of the way. And so then I could see that kind of aversion and that element of delusion that there's a future where everything will hold still if only I can get all this stuff out of the way. <laughs> You know, and, and so it's also helpful, you know, Tejaniya emphasizes a lot that this is a process of we take the learning that we're learning from our Dharma practice and it, having heard it, it may come 
it may come up for you like oh this is this delusion of impermanence you know and and so that wisdom is there in a moment of right mindfulness because right mindful wisdom is needed to know that we're not going to get involved with this we're just going to see that this is what's happening so anyway this is a little example of working with mindfulness of mind in the suttas it's very clear that one knows that one that this is a mind affected by lust or this is a mind not affected by lust or this is a mind affected by hatred or anger or this is a mind not affected by hatred or anger so that actually points to it's quite interesting what does it mean to be mindful of something that's not happening that's not usually part of what we think of as mindfulness but that points again to the fact that this is a cultivation of wisdom and so you can appreciate when you see for example if you're paying if you're mindful of anger there may be a moment when anger goes away and then you spend the moment noting that that's gone now and this is what it's like to have a mind that's free of anger and if you don't appreciate that that's what's happened then you know this appreciation is what's feeding wisdom so you're not trying to make these things happen but you're there as it appears and you're there with it and you're there when it goes away and so you begin to learn in that way and practicing in this way leads into the fourth foundation which is I'm probably way late here yeah um, the fourth foundation is mindfulness of mental processes and I really like uh, what one of our favorite authors we were just talking about the book that that Liz held up um, this is about monitoring the mind on the path to liberation so you'll see under this fourth category many of the standard Buddhist lists like the hindrances the six sense bases the five aggregates the four noble truths the seven factors of awakening so another way to understand this is that this is learning to see experience through these categories that the Buddha has found useful for the purpose of liberation right so um, one quick way to understand this is just with taking two of those lists the list of the hindrances which are um, desire aversion restlessness uh, sloth and torpor and skeptical doubt and we can kind of categorize all the ways that we get caught up in stuff into those five categories and the point is that as we learn to see our experience in terms of oh these are these five not so useful things happening and then appreciate again when they're gone then they're not happening that's very different than being caught up in I want this I hate that I need a nap and so forth you can see instead these are these phenomenon happening and then as those phenomenon have been seen through enough that they stop happening then joy naturally arises and then you're into these more positive mind states the seven factors of awakening that start to arise naturally due to conditions and you become aware when they're there and you become familiar with them and that list just to read you a list is mindfulness itself investigation of states which is kind of what we've been talking about like oh this is this is impatience energy joy tranquility concentration and equanimity and that's kind of a, a glide path into the mind settling down in the direction of freedom so I found it very interesting to read in this book that we've mentioned a lot he talks about the fourth when the fourth foundation of mindfulness arises 
And I've never really quite thought about it like that, but I come to think of it, it's true. You can't just start out being aware of equanimity, right? <laughs> and so it's like when, when it's ready, the, the, it becomes available to see things in this way. It's not automatically available. And so one of the conditions for the fourth foundation being available and something that you can practice with is really mastering this wise attention of seeing things phenomenologically instead of personally as objective um, occurrences that are happening. So um, that is enough on this for now. So there's mindfulness of mind and mindfulness of mental processes, especially those mental processes that lead us toward liberation. Okay, so we have... Yes, yes, let's take a question. We have some time. Okay, uh, in the first part, um, when you spoke about frustration, Mm -hmm. um, I think you said, um, so this is just frustration. But then you spoke about the mind state that drives frustration. That's... I got confused because yeah. I think you used the word, you used the example of anger, mm-hmm. uh, and then you said, "Okay, so that's the mindset that drives anger." And I was kind of expecting sadness or something different, but you just say the mind state is yeah. anger. So yeah, I'm I don't think I was very clear. I don't think I was very clear there. Sometimes uh, there are layers, you know. So under anger might be hurt is often hurt, for example. So you might, if you stay with the anger, as this is anger, when, I, when we say this is just, I, I, I kind of like that and I kind of don't. I don't. If it feels like pushing it aside, then maybe that's not quite the thing to say. But this is the human experience of anger. Let me stay, w- let me just feel what that is. And then that may resolve into something underneath it, it may. But would the would you also call the mind state anger, yeah. or is mind yeah. sa- mind state what drives anger? Both. I think they're just refinements of different mind states. Oh, okay. So yeah, the human experience of anger and the mind state of anger could be the same thing. Yeah. But then there could be something else driving. There it. could be so- uh, everything has conditions, right? So okay. there could be something under that that might be available to you or it might not. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes you just you just have to kind of ride out a, a, a episode of anger just with this is anger and at least I'm not going to act out on it. You know, so this is this is anger and you at that time you don't have availability to have any insight into it. But later on, by staying with it and by not acting on it, by not elaborating on it, it may at some time reveal something else, something more specific. Like, you know, in a way, frustration is a subcategory of anger. You know, it may maybe by being a little more specific than that, it kind of releases something about it for you. Or sometimes it might be more something that's causing, underlying the anger, you could say like sadness or hurt or embarrassment or something like that and sometimes you know it's very interesting when just in staying with something not trying to pull it apart and analyze it but just in staying with it something else about it will emerge but those are all in the area of mind states conditioning mind states yeah thank you for the question 
So let's um, have a breakout here. Do you want to do this? And then we'll have some more time for Q&A after this. Okay. So again, we're going to go into groups of four. One group may be a group of five. Now that Sue, you joined us, welcome. And here are the questions for you. How do you experience how do you experience the difference between caught up in a mind state, I am angry because, how do you experience the difference between being caught up in a mind state, I am angry because, and being mindful of it as a, as a mind state, anger is present. Okay, and being mindful of it as a mind state, anger is present. That is the first question. Yes. Um, yes. You can do the examples second. Just read it without the examples. Okay. Um, how do you experience the difference between being caught up in a mind state and being mindful of it as a mind state? And then the second question is, what helps you make the shift in perspective? What, make you, what, what, what helps you making that shift on how, how I phrased it? Okay. So I was just giving an example of being caught up in anger is like thinking, I sure am mad because they said this and that happened and what am I going to do? And that's being caught up in it. You know, if you just, if, if I say, how are you? I'm mad because, blah, blah, blah. That's one thing. And another thing is, in a mindful situation, anger is happening. Yeah. Okay, so how do you experience that difference? And how do you, what helps you shift? Which is mainly... I think we should go around with both, whatever yeah. comes to your mind with either one. Yeah. We don't have time for two whole different things. Yeah. And just to add, you know, if you see what Chris was talking about, it's mainly phrasing it from personal to impersonal. You know, the first, the first aspect that we were talking about, you know, like I'm angry, you know, we're, talk, we're using the eyes, mine is... Is personal versus shifting that into a perspective of an impersonal, this is what is happening, anger is present. Okay? So let's go into four groups. Uh, I'm sorry, five groups of four, and um, so you can choose which one you, you will go to, and, and we will let you know. Could be the same, could be different. Anything you would care to share about that? Uh, I just want to say that uh, I have sort of avoided the um, concentration on mind states because I, it's like I don't know where, didn't know where to begin. I did, couldn't. It's like I can deal with the breath, 
because mm -hmm. they're very specific instructions you focus. Mm -hmm. But the mind is because it's like, it just goes and, and it's like, and the minute I start to think of it, and the mind has gone off on a, on a track, and then another track, and then another track. And um, your explanation has really given me a way of looking at it differently. So I'm, I just wanted to say I'm I'm, I'm grateful for that because you really cleared up a lot of confusion. And it sounds like this is really a good thing, a good way to, um, uh, uh, to practice mindfulness. Great. Thank you. I hope that's so. Once again, violating the rules. Uh, <laughs> yesterday, I was at uh, Spirit Rock, and Rick Hansen and, and uh, um, a doctor were there giving a talk on, uh, on the physiology of uh, the process of meditation and what have you. And the thing that just hit me over the head just, was that he showed a slide where the activity of uh, focus meditation happened in the brain, where open awareness happened in the brain, totally different part of the brain, where mantra meditation happened, hmm. different again, and where meta meditation happened in the brain. All of these four different ways of, of doing mindful mm -hmm. meditation practice and the effect that long-term meditation had on changing the brain. Mm. And it was a very, very interesting uh, talk the whole day was about that. Switching subjects and getting to following the rules. One of the things that I have found to be extremely useful about this, this is to identify the kinds of views that I have. And I have gotten to the point where I can see I have certain views, but I no longer really care about them. Mm -hmm. That is, they, by, by, less, by realizing that they're there, but not taking them as truthful or powerful, I am able to see things in a very different way. It kind of opens up the whole ability. So I kind of... I have my views, you have your views, and I don't care about either one of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's mm -hmm. a, wonderful, a wonderful kind of thing. And it also helps me to behave better, which I think is the most important thing. It's how I behave, it's not so much how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I want to say one other thing. My, my mentor, I have this, this son, 32-year-old son, who lives with us, has clinical depression sleep 16 hours a day, you know, I want to fix it, <laughs> yeah, and uh, so I was talking to my mentor and about this and, you know, complaining and, you know, what have you, and he said, well, what if he spends the rest of his life in your house, living, six, sleeping 16 hours a day, will that be okay? And of course, my first reaction was, no, that wouldn't be okay at all. But as soon as I realized, yes, it would be okay. And if that's going to be the reality, then I accept that reality. 
that I, and that has changed my whole relationship with my son. Mm -hmm. It has opened things up. I am not wanting to fix it hmm. anymore. I mean, I can't. There's nothing yeah. I can do. Right. We have psychiatrists, and you right. know, it just goes on and on. It's been going on for a long time, and and so that realization that you know and acceptance of whatever happens allows you know an opening up that's really very wonderful so uh, thank but you. I like it better when I don't follow the rules thank you thank you I appreciate all of all of those contributions thank you, thank you. Um, so I I would like to get some tips <laughs> um, <clears throat> in the group that I was in I felt that I was kind of the most junior um, on the team um, and what I'm trying to practice now is non-reactive awareness and it seems like what we're talking about today would be very helpful but I feel kind of like a little overwhelmed and if you could help me see how it connects to non-reactive awareness because you know when you're saying what helps me make the shift of perspective um, I um, once I make it I know but <laughs> if mm -hmm. I don't make it I don't know mm -hmm. um, so what would help me be more aware of that mm -hmm. You know, the first thing uh, that comes to me is if you can be aware of the reactivity, you know, when that's present, just that awareness can start to create a little space for you where the reactivity is not so visceral and it becomes observable and that's the doorway to non-reactive awareness in a way. Does that make some sense? I love this. So it's, you're saying... Being aware of the reactivity, as yeah. opposed to like I don't want the reactivity, so I'm not right. aware of so, it. Right? So when we when we don't want reactivity, <laughs> we're we're kind of aversive to it. Yes. You know, there's a little attitude of aversion there. But instead, to go, okay, you know, I'm I'm feeling stimulated by this. I'm feeling reactive to it, towards it. But to try and do it, just see that. You might even see. Oh, I'm reactive, and the way I'm knowing it is that I'm feeling some, you know, flutteriness in my chest, and my voice wants to say something, you know, so noticing those things, it leads the way towards non-reactivity in a way. Yeah. I feel like um, uh, something I'm, I intended to be more clear about, <laughs> but just awareness of awareness, that may sound fancy, but I don't, it doesn't have to be fancy. It's just knowing that right now you are aware of something. That in itself is already the, is the big step. You know, because you're not really trying to change what you're aware of, you're, you're being aware of it. But with that little heightened realization that this is yet another thing that I am aware of at the moment. That's all that it takes, really. Because then something has let in that this is a thing that's happening. And by just, just having it land in your mind as this is a phenomenon, instead of being completely in, and what am I going to do about it? 
you know, just by spending a little second now and then with this is a phenomenon <laughs> and, and I'm aware of it, that begins to have an effect. And I will say <clears throat> also that, you know, we're all unique. All of us has our own experience. We all react to different things. We may have similarities. But we're really, we're really unique. So my time, my pace will be very different from Liz, very different from Chris. So to recognize also that, and, and, and recognize it as, as wow, what, what a great thing that, you know, I can, I can see this at my own time. I can work with different aspects of mindfulness, the Brahma Viharas, or whatever I want to explore. And, and bringing that sense of curiosity is being really helpful for me. So um, one of the things that I have noticed about myself is that I, I, um, I'm not always aware first. What happens is I do things or say things first, and then I become aware, like, oh, that's mm -hmm. not what I wanted. I don't want to be saying things like that. I don't want to be slamming doors or, you mm -hmm. know, making loud noises because I must be angry. Oh, I'm doing this. I must be angry. So it's like my I see my behavior first, and then I go, something's up. And, and that helps me to name. It helps me to, it triggers me to sit with that and, you know, try to get at what's going on. And, and in, that my, in that state of awareness, then I, you know, can uh, choose to continue being angry or passive-aggressive or, you know, upset or reactive, um, or at least once I name it, then I have the choice. I kind of get out of my, you know, whatever, my lizard brain and into, yeah. you know, that part of, you know, having some awareness and, and you know, conscious intent to be different. Would you just differentiate again the different, the, or just describe the differences between the third and the fourth? Mm. Yeah. Um, the th I mean, it's a good question, and they sh I think they kind of shade into each other. The third is becoming aware of the current mind state, whatever it is, getting a hold of kind of the idea that we have a mind, that we're seeing the world through the mind, and wh what is going on in there in the moment. You know, is it? It's kind of like the the mind state that you might think of as an emotion or an attitude or a mood. You know, what's going on right now? And I think of it. It's. I mean, the instructions are very brief, but they're just to be aware that it is a mind that's under the influence of this or that, or it's a mind that isn't under the influence of this or that. And then it kind of gets into a mind that's concentrated or not concentrated. So you're becoming aware of your overall state of being whatever it is. No, that's the third one. I'm still describing the third one. The fourth one is really kind of once you, I, as I understand it from reading I've been doing recently, the fourth one is really once you've pretty well mastered how to pay attention in this not-self, impersonal way to phenomenon and processes 
or it's helping you make that transition to really being able to see that way continuously. And then you're really um, looking at things in these Dharma categories. So there is a certain, there's a way of looking, I'm under the influence of this book that's comparing all these different ways that different preservations of the suttas describe this and it's slightly different. But as I understand it, it's really engaging in uh, the practice that's getting pretty clearly toward leading toward liberation. So joy arising, for example. Tranquility arising. Concentration, equanimity. These states of mind that we really, until we've been practicing a while, we really don't know what they're even referring to. And so it's not something that you can decide, today I'm going to practice the fourth foundation of mindfulness. It's really more like you work your way, you work with the wherever is your best starting place in the feeling tone or the body or the mind. You just start trying to notice what's, going to hap- what's happening. And the more you can do that, less and less involved and personally and more and more objectively, and this is what's happening as a mind state, so that you, it's not such a struggle to stay out of getting all involved in it, then that becomes more clear. And then you really can start to see all this tendency to get distracted as one of the five hindrances. And it's just like, oh, this is that hindrance arising. You have some skill with how to let go of that hindrance. And as you've let go of the hindrances, then you can really begin to investigate the mind with very little interference from irregular stuff, you know and you can really see it in terms of the aggregates and these other things that I didn't have time to get into. And then that matures into this sequence of the seven factors of enlightenment really coming to the fore, where you, you become you know, able to... Energy is free, joy arises, energy is freed up, tranquility settles in, equanimity. You really get so that your practice is practicing with maintaining, cultivating and maintaining those qualities which is not something you can just from the beginning decide I'm going to do that now. <laughs> so, in a way, it starts to unfold by itself. You know, these qualities lead to each other in a very lawful and conditioned way that culminates in freedom from tendency to get involved in the other way. But it's not something you can do exactly, but that's what the Fourth Foundation is about. Could could you all, I mean is it uh, could you also say that um, that if you you practice the first three that the fourth one starts to happen and mm-hmm. it's more not controlling that especially mm-hmm. but just mm-hmm. um, um, occasionally or at least sometimes for me occasionally um, noticing that some things have changed and and that you're doing things differently yeah. is that kind yeah. of yeah, and also it does, it can become just extremely clear what's going on in the mind. You know, it's like the, 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 the analogy for the hindrances is like a pond in various conditions. Like, is it whipped around by the wind till you can't see anything? Or is it full of mud? Or, you know, full of algae and things like that? Those describe the various hindrances. But it can get to where it's just so clear that you can just see tick, 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 like slowing down the frames of a movie and this is happening and that's happening and that's happening and, 
you know, you just see that in a very objective way, like a pond that's completely clear and still, and you're just watching the fish and seeing the pebbles, and it's completely clear what's going on. You know, but you, it's that's a quite a fruit of a lot of practice to get to where it's more and more clear what's going on in the mind. And there's less and less doing involved because eventually you are just kind of watching the process go by. Thank you. Yeah. And um, I want to add that, you know, part of uh, as we cultivate uh, cultivate the pra- cultivate the practice and and really they, they co- integrate the practice in our lives and we realize that really our lives is our practice. Um, there may be moments you start recognizing through your body, oh, this sensation, oh. This is how it's been for me. It's like, oh, contraction. Okay. Attitude. I feel, I feel aversion. This sucks. <laughs> it's, it's true. This is really, this is aversion. And then, like Chris was explaining, oh, actually, I recognize this sensation in the body. This is anger. <laughs> you know, this is, oh. And then, we also learn to cultivate um, or, yeah, cultivate and nourish conditions that help us uh, recognizing, becoming more familiarized with how we get into the hindrances, how we get caught up, how we can be at ease with it, how we can maybe let go more sometimes. And how we can cultivate, you know, conditions for those, for mm-hmm. tranquility, conditions for um, calm and, and other, other factors of um, what they call the seven factors of, of awakening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it, maybe it's not only just in this kind of rarefied way that I was explaining it, but it's really seeing what leads to suffering more and what leads to suffering less. You know, so maybe you learn what what grabbing on to something and resisting it feels like. And as you learn that, you kind of see it coming next time. And something in your system just doesn't go there anymore. Because it, like Stan was saying, it just doesn't take that seriously anymore. And so it's wisdom is beginning to kind of take, be a factor more and more in your decision making rather than your fears and wants and whatnot. And so it, you know, you begin to get some insight into the process of of uh, being less hindered and more involved in joy and tranquility and so forth. Yeah. I would like to take this to a more concrete level because I think it's very interesting, but it's very intellectual. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, and I'm an intellectual, but I enjoy that. But I feel like I need to understand this. Mm-hmm. at the more basic level. And I was wondering um, if um, we could take an example. So um, as any one of you <laughs> ever been impatient being at a red light? Yes? Yes. Okay. Uh, could you maybe try to run through what we explained today in how you would analyze or, you know, what happens to you when you get to the red light? All right. So um, one thing to say is there are a lot of different ways that it could happen. 
So let's say I'm having a day where I had time to sit in the morning, and yet I made myself a little late for work. And so I've pulled up, I was just about ready to be on time, but there's a red light. So um, I could, I might notice a red light. So there's a thought, right? And so then I could say, oh, aversion, you know, because I've hung out enough with, you know, a red light and, you know, feeling a tightness and like a, a tension in the body that wants to be at work already and unpleasant feeling tone. Um, maybe I've done that enough that I can go, oh, this is, I'm, here I am being impatient again. And then because I've spent enough time going, oh, this is impatience again, and here's how it feels, and it's unpleasant. I heard, somewhere along the line, I heard about the hindrances. <laughs> I'd been here for a few years, by the way, being impatient at red lights, before I heard about the hindrances. And then once I heard, at it, heard that, I could say to myself, oh, that's aversion. That's one of the hindrances. That might not be such a great thing to do. Maybe tomorrow I'll get up a little earlier so that I'm not late to work. So is that helping a little bit, be more concrete? But, you know, I could come at that with just, um, sometimes I've noticed impatience just physically. Like I'm sitting with someone and I find myself leaning forward and there's an urgency to speak coming up in my body. And I'm like, oh, you know, what I'm really noticing is I've got to get in there and say something. You know, there's, a, like, for example, I, I sit with... Could, I'm sorry, I'm yeah. going to stop you. Could you, instead of the red light, because you, you know, you have practiced this many times, can you take something that you're struggling with, if you don't mind sharing? Okay, I'll take something I struggled with last week. So in my work, I... Uh, sometimes meet with adolescent clients. So a teen comes in and tells me that last week somebody gave them some Xanax to just, you know, here's some Xanax here. You can, this is a really cool high, you'll feel good. Now my client struggles from anxiety. And then, this, and then they said, and oh, by the way, I'm, gonna, I'm planning to take LSD. So inside me, unpleasant. I really want, I do not want harm to come to that teen. Somebody who struggles with anxiety, just popping an, uh, Xanax, that's going to have the worst possible effect. Xanax is habit forming. She's going to have worse panic attacks. You know, like a million concerns come up in me. So what I want to do is I want to sit there and my voice wants to start lecturing, telling the teen why you don't want to do any of that. But there's some part of me that's, done, that's going, you know, is that really going to work? Like, did you like being lectured as a teen and told, don't you even dream of la 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 Did that work? No. So, I, you know, actually, even saying it to you right now, I actually felt the rise, and now I'm feeling the relaxation of recognizing Okay, that was a lot of anxiety that came up in me. 
a lot of unpleasant, a lot of thinking took off, like, oh, this is going to be bad, she's going to have worse panic attacks, I don't know what LSD is going to do to this kid, you know, a lot of thinking took off. But I could recognize, wow, I'm having a thinking attack and an anxiety myself, and I need to take a breath and just feel how's it going to be how how can i be effective with this particular team um, the mindfulness of did you go to try to feel how it felt in your body yeah so yes you know just getting that rise in tension and that feeling of You know, I'm not physically leaning forward towards the teen, but everything inside me is. Or it's almost like something really uncomfortable is coming up into my chest and head. Is that helpful? It's, it's 3.40, and I'm sorry we're keeping everybody so late. Let me, let me say two things that I want everybody to hear, and then you can leave or st we can stay and discuss. Um, one is that... Uh, In a couple of weeks, sometime, you'll be getting an email to sign up for the retreat in June, the day-long retreat that will be here. And we need a headcount just because we're hoping to provide you lunch, and we want to know who's coming. So we make it a little nicer day by offering lunch. So you'll be getting that. And second, this is probably Bruni's last appearance with us this year. <laughs> so um, I want to say, yes, they, there's one more session, and I'll be on retreat. I'll be at IRC. And then um, the, for the retreat, it's, I, I'm also going to be at IRC. So equanimity is just <laughs> as it is. I went back and forth and struggled, and it is what it is right now. And so, um, no, 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 no. I'll be here, and I just want to say thank you, thank you. Thank you. I feel so much, Mudita, for being, being part of this and, and, and the trust and, and the, that you give um, to share all, you know, everything that you're doing with us. And um, just please know that um, is, is also supportive for my practice and I'm deeply grateful and I'm, I'm here. So... Um, thank you so much. Thank you, Bernie. <laughs> I just want to say, keep this simple. I think we, I think we made this sound very complicated today, and it's really, you know, are you aware? <laughs> what are you aware of? You know, and is it leading toward suffering or away from suffering? That's really what. That's all you need to do. Okay. <laughs>